And so you build your character, and then immediately after that, they have you uh, uh, design your palico, which is literally your cat companion who is waist height. So I modeled, I started modeling him after Apollo, and like it looks a very much like Apollo, in, like in in the game. But mm-hmm. Apollo was sitting on the couch, and he was looking directly at the screen because it looks exactly like him. And he's like, "It's a mirror." Oh my god. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Lauren Delcello, Managing Editor for WQP. I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. And I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor for Water and Waste Digest. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, We will celebrate National Water Quality Month and dig into California's new definition of microplastics in water. We'll also discuss some recent research on the relationship between COVID-19 and wastewater. Additionally, we'll share some One Water news that the U.S. Water Alliance announced the U.S. Water Prize 2020 winners. And we have an interview with Patrick Shields. He is the general manager for the West Basin Municipal Water District in Los Angeles, California. I talked to him about the challenges water scarcity places on his facilities and how West Basin overcomes them through multiple programs and imported water sources. But first, let's have a little bit of celebration for National Water Quality Month, an annual time to remember the importance of water in all of our lives. I celebrated this month by changing my water filter and getting a new water thermos. Ooh, that's exciting. Wow. And you're celebrating by hydrating currently, right? Yes, I do have some water right here. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So the first uh, news item I brought to the table today is uh, via Politico, California has become the first state to define microplastics in water. This is a pretty big deal. So uh, according to Politico, the move is a major landmark because in the future, drinking water agencies in California will be required to test their supplies for plastic particles smaller than five millimeters. Uh, The next step would be the State Water Resource Control Board will propose testing methods by July 2021. And after the testing protocol is determined at that point, water suppliers will be required to test and report findings for four years. Uh, This also struck me as pretty remarkable because a frequent WQP contributor, Greg Greinecke, always likes to say, as California goes, so goes the nation. So California is often on the forefront of water regulations and sustainable water reuse management practices. So it will be interesting to track if some of these practices carry across the nation as well. So I wanted to open the discussion up to the team a little bit on what your thoughts are on the one water element of microplastic management, which I'm sure we have touched on the podcast a little bit in the past, as well as impacts of California sustainability plans. Yeah, I I think it's particularly interesting. I I know that I, I think we've spoken before about the number of things that regulation wise water agencies and wastewater agencies have to keep track of and everything. And yeah adding another thing often like kind of upsets them and makes their job harder. But I think this one is particularly interesting just from the data that could be gathered from it of like how 
prolific this microplastics problem truly is, how much of it is in our drinking water systems versus the ocean. And I think, too, what would be even more interesting is how does that translate to the wastewater systems as well? You know, um, how does that – presumably it would enter sewage if it's in the drinking water then, too. So I think that it's, it's – to me, it could provide some very interesting data points on a better understanding this, this microplastics issue. And kind of going off what you were saying towards the end, Lauren, is I'm so interested to see what states um, – to how other states handle this and what kind of practices they use. I'm interested to see if they all model their practices exactly like California or if they branch out based on their region and kind of where they are and what their weather and, and all of that is like, because of course that would all have a factor in where the water is going. So I'm interested to see what comes next for other yeah. states. Kind of amazing. It's the first really, I mean, what Bob was saying about data gathering, there's so much that we don't know about microplastics in drinking water and wastewater and stormwater runoff. I mean, there's just so much we don't know. So the data management element of that is super important. Um, yeah. Good segue here, think, Bob. You had some uh, California-related news as well. Yeah, well, before I move on to that, I did want to touch back on Greg's point about as California goes, as goes the nation. Um, yeah. Potable reuse systems and stuff. California kind of has been at the forefront of a lot of that here in the United States. It's translated into Arizona and Texas now yeah. um, with them developing their own programs. I think that'll, that'll only grow and change. I would presume with this microplastics side that it would probably be more, more skewed toward uh, national park states rather than like arid states more just because they'd be trying to protect their national parks more from this issue. So that's my assumption of how it would go, but who knows? Maybe it's maybe it's more of like, oh, the East Coast is just more concerned about it than the West Coast, or sent, like I don't know. Who knows how it could go? But that my presumption is national parks would get uh, would be the first ones to be concerned with it. As for the other California news, there was some testing done in Yosemite Valley. They the county hit, uh, in Yosemite Valley had started testing the wastewater there to determine how like coronavirus cases and they they did so uh in june and based on the data they accumulated so far the officials also believe that an estimated 170 people in the park the week of 4th of july may have been infected with the coronavirus meaning not saying not meaning that they got infected while they were there but they had the infection and uh through uh, through urine and feces, they were people that this report was able to determine that those people likely had it while they were at the park. Um, that number supposedly dropped to 60 the following week, but it raises an interesting point that continually is coming up about the relationship between water or wastewater and the coronavirus and using wastewater as a means to track the spread of this virus and to better understand the spread of the virus within communities. I liken this similar to tracking opioid epidemics or um, dr or drug issues in communities and whatnot. When you see spikes of certain things, that could relate to uh, a problem in the community. And giving that type of data and information over to local partners can help address those issues uh, directly. But um, to tie this back into the wastewater worker themselves, WEF had uh, posted some, some information on a, a blue ribbon panel that indicates that coronavirus risks are low for wastewater workers, but that certain 
things should be taken uh, account for in that regard. Uh, given the characteristics of the virus, they it is unlikely that the virus is any more infectious than other types of viruses that are in wastewater streams already. But uh, they did find that uh, it was important for wastewater workers to continue to use personal protective equipment to uh, protect their respiratory pathways um, using uh, respirators, surgical masks, and goggles. And the, they also described that because COVID-19 mainly spreads through respiratory droplets, sites and duties that involve spraying wastewater or biosolids as an aerosol could present an increased risk for inhalation. So again, personal protective equipment is more important. And then additionally, collection systems workers, biosolids, handlers, laboratory analysts, industrial pretreatment personnel, and other hands-on jobs may also face increased exposure due to their uh, close relationship with the uh, solids and the, the wastewater stream at hand. So if you're working in wastewater, still definitely use some personal protective equipment because it could show up in your wastewater. And if it's aerosolized, it, it could present a, a, a greater risk. That said, overall, the risk is still quite low because the treatment within a system tends to get rid of that virus regardless. And I think we wanted to talk about this specifically in the podcast today because uh, everyone across the water sector is probably dealing with questions from consumers and the public about is there COVID-19 in water, in wastewater, and questions surrounding this. <clears throat> and a really big takeaway I got from the Blue Ribbon panel is more research is needed. We're learning something new every day. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, like we talked in the last news item too, continuing to do that uh, data gathering and sharing that with community members is absolutely key moving forward. Yeah, I think still the, the data still says that the treatment of in these systems themselves does treat this, does treat it and inactivate this virus. So it's mm -hmm. not like it's being discharged from those facilities elsewhere. It's more that the influent has it in it, and that's what's being used to understand and uh, track um, this virus, which, you know, if you can track this virus, you could track other ones as well. So that that it, it poses an interesting uh, future for wastewater influent systems and understanding things happening in their communities from a from a virus standpoint or a yeah. um, a disease standpoint too. Because maybe you could be more proactive with other diseases and viruses as well. Yeah, the power of the water sector. It is mighty. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to all the wastewater treatment plant workers for keeping things flowing through all of this too. That's, we want to be grateful to them. So <laughs> so true, so true. Thank yeah. you, man. The the lists that I see of like thank all these people. It never has water or wastewater workers on it. Heck, it rarely even has sanitation like trash workers on it. So yeah, it's all of you guys out there keeping our water clean and safe and everything flowing. You're you're the bomb. Um, as far as being the bomb. <laughs> Uh, incredible segue on my part. On my part, oh, that was uh, Katie has uh, Katie's got the U.S. Water Alliance uh, water prize winners to talk about. Uh, so, Katie, why don't you give us a, a rundown there? Yeah, definitely. So, the U.S. Water Alliance has announced its winners of the U.S. Water Prize 2020. The U.S. Water Prize is awarded in six categories to people and organizations that are leading innovative approaches to water management, according to a press release. Um, and this year's winners include Denver Water for the U.S. Water Prize for Outstanding Public Sector Organization, 
Marriott International for Outstanding Private Sector Organization, Iowa Soybean Association for Outstanding Nonprofit Organization, Flint Community Lab for Outstanding Cross-Sector Partnerships, National Correspondent Jose A. Del Real for Outstanding Journalism on the Value of Water, and U.S. Senator Bennett Cardin of Maryland for Outstanding Public Official. So congrats to them. Um, and I think, Lauren, you had um, some tie-ins, too, that you wanted to bring up in regards to this. Yeah, well, I love to see this, first of all. It's it's always a great time of year to celebrate in partnership with the U.S. Water Alliance, some of these great innovations. But right off the bat, no surprise that Denver Water is leading the charge there, right? Uh, there's been some really great one water work across the board. I know in July 2019, WQP had an article about their new uh, their new complex, which is just an absolute champion for one water work with rainwater harvesting, on-site uh, wastewater management, on-site wastewater recycling system, and so much more that they're doing there, as well as public education, which is a huge part of their efforts. Um, also awesome to see Marriott on the list. Uh, I'm a frequent Marriott hotel stayer, not at this point, but uh, <laughs> there's a there's a lot of uh, people on the list here that I'd love to learn more about the work they do. So thank you, U.S. Water Alliance, for highlighting that. Indeed, yeah, I, I I always look forward to seeing this list every year and seeing these cool projects. And I would love to um, reach out to Denver Water. Maybe I can uh, talk to them individually because I'd like to hear about the things that they've done that have been successful and why they found those things to be successful. I think that could help out a lot of the other uh, Water and Waste Digest audience members who are public public servants. So, And that leads us to our interview. This interview is with Patrick Shields. He is the general manager for the West Basin Municipal Water District in Los Angeles, California. So Patrick, thanks so much for being on the call with us today. We wanted to talk to you a little bit about water scarcity as it relates to the West Basin Municipal Water District, of which you are general manager. Could you tell us first and foremost a little bit of context about West Basin, what you guys do there, and just kind of give us an overview of your facilities? Uh, okay. Well, first and foremost, uh, thank you, Bob, for the uh, uh, the interview and the interest in what we're doing. Um, so we West Basin is a wholesale water agency. <laughs> we so we supply imported drinking water, and I'll probably explain to you what imported means. It's an unusual. Not, not uh, normal for most uh, agencies, but we supply imported drinking water to nearly 1 million people in 17 cities in, uh, and unincorporated areas of Los Angeles County through nine retail water agencies. Um, and we also um, are the producer and provider of uh, recycled water. We have a very large um, and renowned uh, recycled water program that serves uh, over 450 connections in and outside of our service area. Um, and our service area is divided into five divisions that covers the South Bay and, and LA area, uh, the cities of Malibu, uh, down to, you know, Palos Verdes on the coast and the, the coastal cities, Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach, Hermosa Beach, and then inland to Carson, city of Inglewood, uh, El Segundo, uh, Culver City, up to West Hollywood. So quite a very disparate, if you look at the map, they're not contiguous. So that's our service area. 
about 180 square miles. So, um, and we are the fourth, the imported water we get comes from Met, through Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. And we are a member of that. That's the reason we were formed. We're a member of Metropolitan. We're the fourth largest member on the Metropolitan Water Agency. And currently, uh, one of our directors, we have two board members of our board members that sit on their board and our our president, Gloria Gray, is also the chairwoman, chairwoman of the board of Metropolitan currently. So that's a little bit of background of who we are and what we do. Cool, yeah. So could you describe some of the challenges that you guys, that, that water scarcity presents to West Basin Municipal Water District and how you guys look to overcome that? I understand there's like a desal facility that you guys do have in the, in the mix there. When we were formed in 1947, 1948, we became, in, before 1948, up to like 1947, all of the water in the service area was groundwater, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was a new source of water. I mentioned it earlier, imported water. So that's when uh, Hoover Dam was built and the Colorado River Aqueduct was built to bring water from the Colorado River, uh, the Colorado River Basin, uh, shared with six other states in the country of Mexico. But we've got a certain allocation to bring water to Southern California uh, via this 244-mile aqueduct. And so we shifted from groundwater, and if you fast-forwarded to, like, 1990, we were 80% on imported water, 20% on groundwater. And the groundwater was severely overdrafted. And if it wasn't overdrafted, it was contaminated with seawater intrusion. So there's major challenges, growth, overuse, overpumping of the aquifer, overpumping of West Basin. That's the West Basin aquifer. That's the West Basin refers to, and other local aquifers. So that that was, like, the main, you know, challenge and um but then uh, one of the factors that played into it, we were just talking a little bit earlier before we got on this call here, uh, the temperatures on the droughts uh, that we're prone to here, it's a very dry region. We're 100 degree temperatures here for the last week and into next week. So um, we in, we're in a semi-arid region. And uh, the population that we have here could not be sustained by groundwater, not even close, even if it was all available and it wasn't contaminated uh, with seawater, uh, you know, seawater intrusion, making it brackish and therefore unusable until we clean it up. So that's that's one major challenge. We're relying on imported water. But the imported water supply, uh, most recently, that's come under stress. And it's not just imported from Colorado River. In the 60s, they built an aqueduct from Northern California. State Water Project is called, and Metropolitan is the biggest contractor on that, and that supplies water to the Central Valley and to urban Southern California. So about 27 million people served by that, and that really gets water out of the uh, out of the Sierras. It's highly dependent on the snowpack. Every year we we'll look at that snowpack very closely, that it's hopefully robust, and then it melts slowly and we get into reservoirs and store, and that helps us get through the year. So that's the northern component, uh, and then we have the Colorado. Well, both of those arteries and supplies are under duress now. Mm-hmm. So climate change is a big factor here. The the snowpack I refer to is actually the biggest reservoir in California. People don't think of it as such, but that snowpack on the Sierras is the biggest reservoir. Um, but it's very much uh, subject to the vagaries of climate and Mother Nature. Um, mm-hmm. And if we don't have the precipitation, you know, the snow, rainfall, and even if we have it, it melts too quickly and we can't collect it. There's all kinds of challenges. And there's a different dynamic with climate change. Um, and there's also competing interests between ag- agriculture and urban for that water and the environment. 
Uh, yeah. Because the, the water actually comes through the, the bay down. So we're fraught with challenges right now. What was once a very large and reliable two large sources of water. I didn't mention the Alley Aqueduct, which is also another artery that brings water into, again, heavily challenged with, with environmental issues. That, that was one that was, came online in 1913. Colorado River supplied water here started in the 40s, and the state water project came in around uh, 1971, 1972. If you want to find out about the Alley Aqueduct, one, watch Chinatown, the movie. There's, a, there's some poetic devices in there. So the reliance on imported water is a big challenge, and the, the reliability of that supply is greatly um, we're either sharing it with other, other states in, in, or, or the Republic of Mexico. There's been low levels of water in Lake Mead, which is sits behind Hoover Dam, which is one of the main reservoirs. Um, climate change is over there, and in Northern California, the same thing. The, there's the ag, uh, urban, uh, environmental um, competition for that water, affecting. Um, you know, affecting the supply and how much we can get here reliably. So that turns us to what do we do about that? So we changed dramatically in the 90s. After uh, seven years of drought, late 80s, early 90s, West Basin embarked on a uh, recycled water program. Uh, we made a policy decision. Even though we're a wholesaler of water, we have nothing to recycle. So it was incredibly um, visionary of West Basin to um, – uh, you know, embarked on a very, very ambitious water recycling program. But we knew we had customers who could convert from imported water to recycled water and take the heat off of the pressure off the imported water supply. Have more. We wanted to create a local drug proof supply in, in, for our service area. And we had the customers, potentially, but we didn't have any infrastructure and we didn't have anything to recycle. So we entered into an agreement with the city of Los Angeles to buy water secondary treated or twice treated water before it was discharged to Santa Monica Bay. And we purchased that water and then we built facilities, um, the Etsy Little Water Recycling Facility, which is a world-renowned facility. Uh, if you have a chance, you should come visit it. Uh, that was commissioned in 1995. And for the past 25 years, we've been expanding that. And that water, uh, what we do is we don't make recycled water at store and see if we'll find something to buy it. We only make it if somebody has a need for it. So we make mm-hmm. it fit for purpose, fit for purpose. We have five different types uh, using very high different, te- different types of technology, five designer waters, um, yeah. uh, you know, for everything from irrigation to different types of industrial cooling tower, low pressure, high pressure. And we make essentially drinking water for a seawater intrusion barrier. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. That's a lot of water. It used to be just drinking water. It was pumped into wells along the coast kind of create a wall of water if you can envision that to keep seawater from coming in and further contaminating the aquifer, right, just to block it. Mm-hmm. The, pro- the problem was that was all imported water. So we were using maybe 15 to 17 million gallons per day. It was being pumped into there. About 90% of that migrates inland into the aquifer, so it would ultimately become part of the drinking water supply. So we've replaced all that now with highly treated um, uh, uh, recycled water. Uh, just that particular process is the treatment at Hyperion, that's primary secondary, but we do all the advanced treatment at our plants, uh, namely um, ultrafiltration followed by low-pressure membrane, followed by high-pressure membrane, reverse osmosis, followed by uh, AOP, uh, advanced oxidation with peroxide, followed by UV for disinfection, followed by stabilization with lime. So it's essentially drinking water. And that's pumped into into the into these wells from LAX down to Palos Verdes, about 12 miles. 155 wells or so, and that's mm-hmm. now we say that 
17 million gallons a day of water that used to be potable is now recycled water. So that's freeing up, taking the pressure off the, re, off the imported water supply. That, that's been one of our answers, is the whole, and then we put refineries, the three multinational refineries, we were at the time Chevron, Mobile, Arco, uh, converted largely to, uh, to uh, they're heavy users of water to recycle water for their industrial purposes. And then the rest is just irrigation from cemeteries to golf courses. Um, and we're doing probably right now, we're taking about 40 million gallons out of um, Hyperion and producing 38 million gallons a day of recycled water. It varies very high right now. And we continue to expand and we're hoping to get to 70 million gallons a day. In fact, it's a little soundbite for you. We just hit the milestone. We have um, just hit, uh, what was it, 225 billion gallons of recycled water <laughs> produced. That's with a B. That's with a B. 250, uh, 225 billion gallons uh, just this year. Uh, wow. Uh, we're, we're pretty proud of that. And that, that would be enough water. You know, for 8.3 million people for a year, if you were to look at it like that, drinking water, that's freed up. So it's a massive problem. And all of the local, regional, national, and international attention. People come see how we pull this together. Considering we're not a wastewater service provider. We didn't have any, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. it took a, a, and it took a huge investment, almost a billion dollars, to get us to where we're at today. Yeah. And a huge amount of uh, vision from the board and the early leaders. So that's the recycled water component. The other part, of course, is mass, which comes first is conservation. We have really, um, you know, aggressive uh, conservation work. We have had that for, mm-hmm. you know, it goes, that that's, you know, the best, the, the, the best water that you use, the water you don't use, right? <laughs> that's the best <laughs> you can, you can not use it in the first place. Um, there's no treatment of it, and then you don't have to get, you know, deal with the supply issues. Well, you can reduce the impact on that. So you want to have a very robust um, conservation program. What can we do? And we've everything from low flush toilets programs, uh, shower heads, tons of outreach, um, lunch and learn, mm-hmm. tours of our facilities. We're doing them all now virtually, and we do yeah. webinars and. and um, we have all kinds of fans. We really promote that heavily, and uh, it's been very effective um, in, yeah. in reducing individual demand. Yeah, and uh, so just to, just to like touch on some of the things you've already talked about here, because I want to drive drive home like the how each of these elements play. Um, so it sounds like you guys get like some treated treated wastewater that you then recycle. Um, and then from the stormwater element, you're talking about like a lot of that snow melt and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and then um, from the residential side, you do have these programs that you're talking about here about like low flow, low flow toilets and all those kinds of things. Um, could you talk a little bit more about like that public outreach element there? Um, I Do you guys have like an educational center and stuff like that that you, uh, that you use to yeah. teach the public about like this is what we do? Yes. We we do have a water education center. Again, it's, it's more renowned. In fact, we re, um, we upgraded it and, and, and rededicated it last uh, October. Uh, we had um, you know Congressman Grace Napolitano is a big uh, Congress standing Congresswoman and a big 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 promoter of recycled water. She was our keynote speaker, um, and of course we had Eric uh, Mayor Garcetti because we're buying the water we buy actually is from the city of Los Angeles. So we work very closely with the mayor and, and his staff. Um, the education center is replete with, uh, can hold about 160 people. So we do all kinds of classes. 
for the public and, and for schools. Um, and we host all kinds of different, um, you know, conferences and, and um, generally outreach. And it, it has all kinds of exhibits. And it's right in the treatment plant. So you can look into the control room. It's right in the heart of it. And you can look over here on the other side. You can see the lab, which is certified to do almost 40,000 tests a year. Uh, so you can, you, and then you can go tour the plant. So it's a be- if you're ever out here, look me up. People, people come from all over to see it. Yeah, it sounds really interesting that you guys have such a such a robust plan around what you've done. So not only was it seems that not only was the investment in the infrastructure itself, but the investment was also in the educational aspect and making sure that the public understands the value of the water that you guys are creating um, at for wholesale use for all these different purposes, all these designer waters. So yeah, and, and you, you've got to have the public engagement, and our, yes. we have a very uh, high profile, I mentioned some of the cities, you know, from Malibu to West Hollywood to Inglewood, which is now the home of the new entertainment center, uh, the SoFi Stadium for the Rams and Chargers. You saw that. That's our big next, that's our biggest customer now that we just hooked up. That's a, yeah. amazing. And, you know, so we, we're continuing to expand, but the education part of it, back to that, um, uh, yeah, that's key to us. And so we, you know, we work with our, our retail partners. We're a wholesaler, you know, to communicate with the Beltaires. So we have regular meetings with the retailers of the cities. Uh, we have an annual water harvest festival. We get up to 2,000 people that come to that and then all kinds of kids. And it's all about uh, conservation, learning about recycled water, learning about water, period, ocean-friendly gardens. Mm-hmm. The first thing we do to attack the scarcity issue is conservation, education, then recycled water program. That's been yeah. our big uh, thing. Don't don't use it. Then re- replace drinking water, recycle, educate, and then what other options that you have? And stormwater, you know, the stormwater and stuff that that's really, you know, metropolitan's imported water. As far as we're concerned, right now we have a big initiative here called Measure W, that um, in LA County, which is three hundred million dollars a year forever, it's being collected to capture and treat stormwater it was approved in the ballot just a few years ago. But we have a seat. West Basin is a big player in that, in that we, um, there's a lot of projects going to come out of that, but we have two seats on two steering committees in the Santa Monica Bay Watershed uh, Authority. It's looking at the huge, big, you know, all the stormwater. How can we capture all of that and treat it? Because there's two things we're looking at, um, and that is um, can we capture it and can we treat it so that it's not contaminating the, uh, the ocean or Santa Monica Bay in this case? Uh, so we're doing that, and we also have this big storm um, rain barrel as part of our outreach. Too. We give away 2,000 rain barrels every year, and there are also educational events. We actually fund that. And the last thing I'll say on the environmental side, I want to go back to the recycled water, that 225 billion gallons that I mentioned mm-hmm. that we did over 25 years, that's 225 billion gallons of partially treated sewage that didn't go into Santa Monica Bay. So that's a huge environmental benefit. Mm-hmm. It's 225 billion gallons of imported water that we did not have to be worried about. Yeah, thank you for your time. I appreciate it, and uh, ha- have a good day. Take care. Bye-bye. So now, just a little bit of housekeeping as we wrap up the episode today. First of all, I'd like to point listeners to a new industry roundtable that WQP just released live yesterday, but it is available on demand. Uh, The industry roundtable was on lead contaminated water and your community. 
municipal water quality leaderships and lessons learned. It digs into the intersections across the water sector from municipal to point of use point of entry and how professionals across the industry can come together to aid their communities. So I think it might be pretty applicable to our listeners. I hope you check it out. You can view this discussion moderated by me on demand at wqpmag.com. And for WWD, I wanted to share with everyone that I'm continuing to do our weekly video premieres on Facebook. We premiere every Tuesday at 6 p.m. a new 10 to 15 minute video interview with a thought leader in the industry. Some of these are actually authors of pieces that we've already published to talk a little bit more about the projects that they were uh, wrote about. Others are about new technology. Um, and last month we finished nine full videos with all with young professionals with our 2020 WWD young pros so definitely check all those out on our Facebook page or on our website and in September we'll be featuring every single week we'll be talking about our industry icon I'm not going to name him quite yet it is a him but I I'm not going to name him quite yet because I want those uh, videos to speak for themselves about why he is so special but you can check those out by going to bit.ly slash WWD Weekly Digest. And Stormwater Solutions has a new survey open. It is a follow-up survey to our original COVID-19 market impact survey that we sent out in March and April. Um, so we're looking for an update. And um, even if you didn't take the original survey, you can take this one and please do just let us know how the coronavirus is impacting you and your business and your workflow. You can find the survey at bit.ly slash SWS COVID survey two. And I think that wraps up housekeeping for this episode. So don't forget to like, subscribe, and share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And as always, you can reach us at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com to share your thoughts. Or go ahead and give us a follow on Twitter at TUW Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.